Well, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1. I, I come to you with an encouraged heart tonight, and, and I want to encourage uh, your hearts as well. Titus chapter number 1. Um, many of you are familiar, I'm sure, with the context of this book. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to this young man in the faith, a man by the name of Titus, who may be young in years, but Paul has a great deal of confidence in this young man, which is why we will read in verse number 5 that, that Paul took this young man, Titus, who'd been called by the Holy Ghost of God and equipped for a specific purpose. And Paul had confidence in that. Sometimes we look into the eyes of a younger generation and we get so leery as to whether or not we can trust them. Well, let me, know, let me tell you that we can trust the work that God does in the life of young people. And the Bible says in verse 5, it says, For this cause left I thee in creed. In other words, there is work to be done. And he knew that God had called him to do it. We're going to read a number of verses in this passage, so let's go ahead and stand to our feet out of reverence for the reading of God's Word as the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to Titus, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. The following verses give descriptions of the qualifications of those leaders and elders that are to be appointed by Titus. And we'll skip down and rejoin the text at verse number 10. He says, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. Who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, saith, saith the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth unto the pure. All things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in their works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work, reprobate. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. We'll look down to verse number 10. Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God of the doctrine of God our savior in all things for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly righteously and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope 
and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no man despise thee. Father, I pray that you would help me this evening. Lord, I pray that my words would be precise and clear. But Father, above that, I ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm interested in the opening of this book, but specifically in that phrase that concludes verse number 14 of chapter 2. How it says that we should be zealous of good works. I'd like to preach along those lines this evening a message entitled, Zealous of Good Works. If I could do the thing that some authors often do is they give a title and then maybe because of uncertainty or because they're torn between two titles, they add a subtitle. So I will take that liberty this evening and put a subtitle on this. And the subtitle will also come from the text that we have read, and it is found at the beginning of verse number 5 of chapter 1, for this cause. Many of us, we might understand what it means to be zealous of good works, and if not, I'm glad you came tonight because I'd like to explain that. Zealous is this word that means to have an eager or an aggressive pursuit of something. But that pursuit flows out for the zealous person. It flows out of a passionate, consuming allegiance. That's what it means to be zealous. Those to be zealous politically are, are those with a passionate, consuming allegiance to a political party or an ideal. And it is that, that passionate, consuming allegiance which compels them with an aggressive pursuit to its propagation. And here we are, here in this place, Valley View Baptist Church, and we look at the Word of God and desire to place ourselves under the authority of it, and the Word of God says that we ought to be zealous of good works. But the question might be asked, why? Why is it so important that we are zealous of good works? Why can't we be casual <laughs> of good works? And why can't we just follow good works for convenience sake? And, and why is it? Because these good works, might I add, can be extremely demanding and sometimes they'll require an exorbitant amount of self-discipline. You'll find that Good works do not come easily and are not part of the natural man's desire. For the natural man desires a quick pleasure. He desires no work. And the natural man desires only reward, yet without any labor of it. So why is it that we have to be so passionately allied with God that we might aggressively pursue this thing called Good works. Well, for this cause. For this cause. For the cause of Jesus Christ. God forgive us if we do not live 
for the cause to which we are called. During my time in the United States Army, there were a number of soldiers who signed up for the college money. The GI Bill, the tuition assistance, the loan repayment program. Uh, they're wonderful incentives by Uncle Sam, and I'm thankful for them, although I have not been able to take advantage of the incentives myself. I, I understand that there are a great number of soldiers who signed up for those incentives, and I just happened to be deployed with some of them. And here they were. You know, now in a combat zone with bullets flying all over the place, mortars coming in every single morning, and they were, would frequently say, I didn't sign up for this. To which I responded, it was not in the fine print. It was bold. What do you think warriors do? They go to battle. There is a cause to their calling. And for the same cause we have been called. We have been called not to sit idly by. We have been called not just to reap the benefits of being saved and placed into this, this, this uh, reality of eternal life. This, this home called heaven. This family called the family of God. We have been called to be not just worshipers but also warriors. We have been called to go into the, the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. We have been called to take the gospel, the infinite gospel of Jesus Christ and to go out into all the world and preach that gospel. We have been called not to just take it out but we have been called to live this life that is now dead to sin, dead to self and identified with Jesus Christ. Do we not remember the oath that we took before the church when we followed in believers baptism? Whether you were knowledgeable of it at the time or not, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that in baptism we demonstrate that we are buried with him and we are now raised to walk in newness of life. The apostle Paul wasn't confused about this. He knew what caused he knew why he needed to be zealous for good works. Because for him, to live was Christ and to die was gain. For him, he was committed to the radical pursuit of anything that Jesus Christ called him to be or say or do. The Apostle Paul's calling there on the road to Damascus, in that moment, he was blinded, but yet he saw more clearly on that day than he had ever seen in his life. For he saw the one who was worthy of all things. He saw the one, Jesus Christ, the same one that Moses encountered there at the burning bush who described himself as the I am, the same one to whom Elijah prayed to that, that sent down fire on Mount Carmel. The same one that Joshua encountered there at the wild, in the wilderness. And as, as he encountered him, he says, are you for us or for or our enemies? And that, that angel responds, nay, but as captain of the lords of hosts. And Joshua then did what? He bowed down before him. It's the same one that Isaiah saw high and lifted up whose train filled the temple 
temple and whose angels swarmed about him crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That same God, Paul realized that he was worthy and is worthy and will always be worthy of his life. I think it's interesting that in this passage here in chapter number 2, verse number 10, there's this description of those who were zealous for good works and that they would not be purloining. In other words, they should not be thieving or stealing, but showing all fidelity. Why? That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. I don't have time to go into all that this verse means, but if you could just grant me a little liberty here. The idea is that God wants to use you as an ornament of glory, an attraction for His doctrine. And the only way to do that is that we be zealous for good works and remember the cause. If we are to be zealous of good works and remember that cause, we must consider the promise. I notice in the opening text of this, of this book, sometimes we, we see this introduction of Paul, which is so familiar to you if, if you've been reading your Bible for very long. In, in Titus, he says, Paul, a servant of God, the apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the, uh, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. And, and we can read these opening and introductory statements, and we can read them in a very cursory way and not allow them to have the full measure of impact that they ought to have. For in verse number two, after Paul introduces himself as a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Why are we zealous of good works? Because we have considered the promise. Consider the promise of eternal life. We spent some time talking about the power of that promise this morning. We looked at the fact that 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 promise comes with it, an infinite measure of grace, an infinite measure of God's power, and an infinite measure of God's love. That is beyond our ability to comprehend. But if we don't understand the full length of it, let us at least grasp the depth of it. That there is no way to exhaust the power and the capabilities of the promise that is found in the gospel. But here it describes what that hope purchases. That in hope of eternal life, that's the promise that God has provided eternal life. And my concern is the reason that we allow ourselves to live so recklessly and so carelessly and so dangerously is because we do not live in light of the promise of eternity. If I were, I thought about doing this, but I won't do this. I considered having you all stand. And while all standing, pose the question to you, how many years do you think you have left? 
Some of you are very grateful we did not go through this exercise. Do you think you have one left? If so, be seated. And some of you would be seated. And two left. And three. And four. And five. Six. You have ten years left. That puts me at 49 years old. And you have 20 left. 20 left. I don't know what your age is, but that would make me 30, 40, 59. I'm real good at math on the fly. 20 years left, 30 years left, 40 years left. Do you have 50 years left? Do you have 60 years left? The difficult reality is that many of us don't have 60 years left. Not on this world. But a more important reality is, is not how many years you think you have left on this earth, but the fact that you have eternity remaining in that which is to come. Eternity. Eternity, and I could count up through the years. Do you have a hundred years left? Two hundred years left? Three hundred years left? Do you have a thousand years remaining, or or five thousand years remaining? Could it be that you have thirty thousand, or forty thousand, or fifty thousand years remaining? How about five hundred thousand years remaining? Do you have that left in your life, or or could I say, do you have a million years? One million years remaining. And, and on this earth, the answer is no, absolutely not. But on the next, the answer is absolutely yes. You have one million. How about two? You have two million or three million or four million. Do you have one billion years remaining? And the reality is yes, you do. Sometimes we think about these large numbers and we fail to be able to put them into perspective. So if I could allow this illustration to add perspective to this conversation on eternity here tonight. But if we could reduce eternity to segments of one second, and, and could I ask you how many seconds in terms of duration or how long is one million seconds? Is it two days or three days or, or four days? One million seconds is 12 days. One million seconds. But how about one billion seconds? One billion seconds. If I remember correctly, one billion seconds is over 30 years. One billion seconds. 30 years. One, two, three, four. But what if we were to turn those seconds passing by as quickly as I could snap my fingers into the length of years and then turn those years into the length of centuries and then turn those centuries into this concept called eternity where there is not a sunset that will conclude your life but instead that we will live forever. That is the promise the promise that God has given to us. The promise of this hope in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began.
And that we can have this glorious thing called eternal life. And why should we be so zealous of good works? It's because everyone will live for eternity. The only question is where? Where will they live? Because there's only two options. It's either heaven or it's hell. And we sing that last and final verse of that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, 10 million years, 10 billion years, 10 trillion years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And as those glorious words of excitement, rejoicing, and praise come out of our lips, for the same duration of time will the unrepentant soul be in the lake of fire which burneth forever and ever. See, the Apostle Paul, he gets this. He gets the weight of eternity. And why is it so important that we be zealous for good works? For what cause do we discipline ourselves and beg God to move in our spirit and yield ourselves completely to him? It's because we have considered the promise of eternity and that promise has been given to all men who will receive him. For God so loved the world and it is God who desires to use us to reach it. Did you imagine that eternity uh, hangs in the balance of heaven and hell and the fulcrum of Jesus Christ is there in the middle and it is those who lay hold on him who receive eternal life and who is it that God has called to bring this message to the world? It is us. It is we, the church of the living God. That's why we must be zealous to good works. It's not so that we can get to heaven. It's because we're already there in the eyes of God. Zealous of good works, we must consider the promise. The second thing that I noticed in this passage is not just the fact that we should consider the promise, but that we should remember that we've been commissioned to preach. What are we supposed to do about this? You know, it's, it's difficult for me sometimes when I go to these, you know, big preachers meetings and, and stuff and, and they'll, they'll bring in some of the most powerful preachers I've ever heard in my life. N nothing like the guy y'all are stuck with tonight. And, and I'm telling you, I've sat in that pew just overwhelmed as they begin preaching on the goodness of God. Oh, and it's almost like as, as they're preaching, the Holy Spirit brings the fresh bread of heaven right by and I can taste and I can see that the Lord is good. And long after the last note of the invitation is played and everybody else begins to shake hands and scurry out of the building, I sit there in reflective silence just in awe of His majesty and His glory. And sometimes in those moments, I'll be honest with you, 
I sit there in the rich, overwhelming presence of our God, the Holy One of Israel, and I wonder, Lord, what now do I do? What do I do with your majesty? Lord, what do I do now that I've been brought to the presence of your glory? Lord, what do I do now that I've, I've sat with angels and, and seen your, your glory? Lord, what do I do now that I see myself a wretched, dirty, nasty sinner who has been cleansed under the fountain of your blood and has been redeemed and brought nigh? And Lord, I, I just want to be at your feet, but what shall I do? I imagine that's how every single one of the disciples felt as they saw the Lord ascending up into, into heaven. What now should we do? And then they remembered. And they knew exactly what they were supposed to do. They were commissioned to preach. They were commissioned to proclaim everything that they had seen and what they had heard and what Jesus had taught them that they should then themselves go into the world and proclaim this truth. And as I read in this text, I notice in verse number two, it says, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. And I notice that it doesn't end with a period there, but there's a continuation now that you've seen this glorious truth, verse number three says, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching. And that is our commission. I love that word manifested. That word manifested means to be brought to light, to be demonstrated. That word manifest means to, to set out and make clearly known. And church, that is our job, to preach the word of God. You might say, well, Pastor Jared, I, I, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a missionary. I'm, I'm not an evangelist. Yes, you are. You might not be pastoring a local church. You might not be called to go on this itinerant ministry and, and serve as a missionary. Uh, you might not uh, be serving in that capacity. But what you are called to do and commissioned to do is declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus gathered the disciples together and said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, he was talking about making God's truth manifest in the world today. Church, that's our job. We've got the wrong idea about church. What is church? Oh, it's sitting in a, in a pew and listening to preaching. No, 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 church is getting up from the pew and going out and doing the preaching. That is what a church is supposed to do. We are the body of Christ, not the cadaver of religion. And lest I, I be confused about that, what that means is we are to get up and we are to go and we are to make every trip a mission trip and we are to live in light of eternity and we are to realize that we are commissioned by the Holy Spirit of God and Jesus Christ himself to proclaim truth everywhere we go. Why? For what cause? First off, because he's worthy. And second off, because this world needs it. 
Listen to the description that's, that's given here in this world in verse number 10 of chapter 1. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. Boy, doesn't that describe our world well? That's the amazing thing about God's word. Here Paul is writing under inspiration of the Holy Ghost to Timothy. And I have no doubt in my mind that as this letter is flowing from, from that quill and ink, Paul's thinking about Timothy. And Paul's thinking about the fact that Timothy's about to be alone on this, on this island for this cause left I thee in Crete. Paul left him there. Paul's concerned about him. Paul knows his strengths and he knows his weaknesses the same way that God knows your strengths and knows your weaknesses. And Paul's thinking about this, this man. One of our bigger errors when we read the Bible is, is to forget how personal it, it was and how personal it should be to us. From the same way that Paul cared for Timothy and was concerned about Timothy, God cares for you and is concerned about you. For this cause left I thee in creed that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. You know, that there are some things that were, that were wanting or things that were lacking in that culture that were hindrances both to, to Titus. Did I say Timothy? But this is a Titus personally. Yeah, some of y'all caught on to that. You know, Paul was writing to Titus and thinking about Timothy. You get what I'm saying. Help me, Lord. Paul's thinking about Titus. God's thinking about you. Could you imagine if God were to write a letter for you, for this cause left I thee in Knoxville? Some of you are feeling like, yeah, I do feel like I got left and stranded in Knoxville. Some of you are like, what do you mean? I just got here. <laughs> It's for a cause. That's why we can't be so casual about our lives, about the works of our hands. And that's why it's so vital that we are zealous to good works. Because we are passionately allied with the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are passionately going to pursue what he's called us and caused us to be here in this day and age. And as Paul's thinking about Titus, he's not just thinking about Titus's individual strengths and weaknesses and, and praying, Lord, help him. He's a young man. There's going to be many adversaries. He's also thinking about what he's up against. And he says in verse 10, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. Paul wasn't deceived who the enemy was, and you ought not be either. Why is it so important that we live zealous for good works? Why is it so important that we remember that we are commissioned to preach? Because there's a world that's out there that is wicked and deceived and evil. And they think that they are actually doing good by propagating the, the devil's handbook. By propagating the, the, the humanistic manifesto. By saying that there is no God. By, by searching and trying to convince everyone that you can live however 
whatever you want. And, and as long as you're good with it, no man can judge you. And that is a manifestation of the same thing that Titus is being warned of in verse number 10. For there are many unruly. You know what that word unruly means literally? It's a speaking of insubordinate activity, not willing to submit themselves to authority. And we live in a whole world that's not willing to submit themselves to the authority of God's Word. Oh, they think it's some fable. They think it's some fictitious work. But they come to that conclusion, not because they, 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 it, they come to that conclusion, because it gives them the liberty to live however they want. And someone has got to proclaim the truth. Oh, we got to speak the truth in love. Yes, that's right. But it's got to be the truth too. And it's got to be spoken. It's got to be preached. Or if I could use the words of the Holy Ghost here, it must be made manifest. Say, Pastor Jared, your face is getting all red and you're getting out of breath. You're going to preach your voice out. That's what zealousness, zealousness looks like. Oh, we got to be aware of our environment that, that the Lord would open our eyes and we would be able to see how God desires to use us. He says beyond this in verse number 10, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. Vain talkers, it's those that are senseless and mischievous talkers. But I, I think that it's very interesting that he's not talking about unruly doers and vain doers and vain deceivers, but he's talking about vain talkers. In other words, there's, there's a lot of information coming from this world that's deceiving everybody else and God has placed us here to be the pillar and ground of the truth. You do realize that, that is a biblical explanation of the church, a description of what we are to be, the salt and the light and the pillar and ground of the truth. Who's going to speak truth in your workplace? Who's going to be the, the pillar of truth in our neighborhood? Who's going to be that preacher of righteousness? Out there in this community, God has called us better than that. God has commissioned us to preach his word. And that is the amazing thing about it, is that God is not ambiguous about his method. Notice what it says. Verse number three, but hath in due times manifested his word. How, Pastor Jared, how has the Lord made known or made clear his word through preaching? Through preaching. Not through interpretive dance. Not through lifestyle evangelism. But they're just going to see how different I am and then they're just going to wonder, why are you so different? And they're just going to ask me and then I'm going to say, you know, because of Jesus. And then they're just going to get saved. Look, if, it, if the name of Jesus is not spoken, how are they to know that we are not just some moral, good-natured person? No, it must be at the name of Jesus. And if that's never proclaimed, if that's never spoken, or if I could say it the way the Bible does, if that's never preached, then it's not made manifest. It's not made clear. Oh, we must remember. 
that yes, we ought to be zealous for good works, that our good works would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. But if we do not speak about what that doctrine is, they'll never know. I don't think that we can win someone to the Lord just by living a good lifestyle that must be accompanied with preaching. Isn't that what we learn in Romans? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we stop right there. But how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom of, have they, they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? God's not unclear about his method. We sometimes just lack the courage to follow it. Let's be zealous to the good work of preaching. And then I'll, I'll close with this. For to be zealous of good works. I don't believe it's enough to just consider the promise or remember that we're commissioned to preach. But we must be committed personally. Committed personally. Listen to the personal nature of this letter. The very first word, chapter number one, verse one, Paul. Paul. Look at verse number four. The first two words in verse number four, to Titus. These are just people. Look at verse number five. For this cause left I, that's Paul, thee, that's Titus, in Crete. In other words, Paul knew his job and he knew that it was his personal responsibility to make sure that it was done. And Titus knew his job. He knew that it was his personal responsibility to get it done. So my question is this, what's your personal responsibility? What is your role in this? Look, when we look at, at the New Testament, we see over and over and over again, God using people. Look at every letter that came from the pen of the Apostle Paul, and you will find person after person after person being mentioned. You'll find names like Tychicus and Titus and Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla. You will find Erastus and others that are committed to that cause. And the reason that their names are being mentioned is because they are doing the work personally. And the greatest enemy of our personal commitment is the idea that that's someone else's job. Someone else will do it. Oh, that's, that's, that's pastor's job. That's pastor's job. You know, I didn't, I didn't invite the couple that showed up this morning. You realize that if, if the Lord desires to build his church, which by the way, he is doing and he will do. But he desires to use us personally. If we're not committed to that, and we think that we're just Oh, we're just supposed to do good works because God said so. Well, that's one reason to do them. But let's go a little bit deeper. Why did God say so? He said so. Because there is an eternal promise. 
we need to consider. He said so because we have been commissioned to preach his gospel. He said so because it's, it's us, the church, who God desires to be involved in that. I want you to notice concerning this personal commitment of Paul. Notice how he describes himself. He describes himself in the opening two phrases. He says, Paul, first off, a servant of God. The Greek word there is doulos. It's the same word that's used to describe a slave. Someone who has no will of their own and is entirely under the control of the master. And that's how Paul saw himself. That's why I was able to say, to live is Christ, because he's the master anyways, and to die is gain. That's why he was able to, to write unto Titus and say the things that he said. That's why he was able to say that he must be zealous unto good works. That's why he's able to approach his calling that way, because he realized that he is a servant of God. And I heard this one time, and I'll never forget it, is that the most important aspect of being a servant is not to serve, it's to obey. And here Paul is saying, I'm the servant, you're the master. He was personally committed. The next thing that I see, he's a servant of God. Here's how he describes himself, and an apostle of Jesus. The Greek word there, apostle, is apostolos. It literally means sent one. So here's what Paul is saying. Paul, a slave of my master God, and a sent one. Of Jesus Christ. We need to open our eyes. And start seeing ourselves the same way. For we are not here just to reap the glorious benefits of eternal life. We have been commissioned to preach. Therefore we should be committed personally. Personally.